I'm just going to pretend I'm not annoyed. It's Friday, June the 30th, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, a British journalist based in The Hague and handbag rummager. With me today are Molly Quell, the Don Quixote of Facebook and Pearl Paters, master student and Twitter Jeff Supremo. So what have you all been up to this week? Uh, I've been locked up in a library the entire week. Okay, but they let you out? They let me out, yeah. yeah. Did, did you have to negotiate uh, with your hostage takers? <laughs> yeah, I had to send a love letter to uh, <laughs> to the negotiator and uh, then they let me out. Okay. And how but only you... for this podcast, I have to go back immediately after recording. Okay, and how about you, Molly? Uh, I've apparently worked 72 hours already this week, so oh. I'm I'm done. Yeah. yeah. So it's... will you be uh, making it along tonight to, I believe it's Theresa May's Leaving uh, Drinks Night? I, w- <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I will not. Yeah. I will not be making it to Theresa May's Leaving Drinks Night. We are having a uh, scotch and board games evening at my house, so That's... we will be playing board games and drinking good scotch. And you'll be leaving instead of Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll it's prob- Molly's Leaving Night. So. Exactly. It's always so. Molly's Leaving Night. It's... And how about you, Gordon? What have you been up to this week? How's the construction going on in front of your house? Uh, yeah, we've, we've it's still pa- going on? It's still going on, yeah. We've got a pavement now. So, oh, uh, wow, look at that. So let's go. So we've got a pavement and a dirt track, and I would quite happily just leave it like that. Yeah. Actually. I bet you the kids would, too. Yeah, they, they, oh, yeah they're, they're having a ball. Yeah. My, my younger son's out there every night playing playing, playing, the, the... playing in the street. Nice. Yeah, it's, kicking it's, balls around. Yeah, it's like they brought a, a playground in and dropped it off right in Basically, front of your house. Basically, yeah. That's, that's what he's had for the last six weeks. So it'll yeah. be kind of sad to see it go. Yeah, I bet he will. Yeah, and see those damn cars back again. Oh, poor cars. Now you have so. to dig holes at the beach. Yeah. Yeah, true German fashion. Yeah, no, Dutch fashion, you have to dig canals. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, I forget that you guys have to integrate because otherwise you're going to get booted out of the country because of uh, exactly. Brexit. Well, well, I do. My kids don't. They've got Dutch passports. They're uh, fine. Uh, no, no so I've, I've put my name down, but uh, I don't think I'm going to uh, fly all the way to London just to take part in a joke. But I believe it is a real event and people living in the area are going to turn up and uh, it'll probably be quite a good night. Yeah, I bet you it will be. But <laughs> she's not. she will continue to be the uh, Prime Minister, right? Uh, yes, I think obviously they wanted to, somebody on Facebook, some kind of hearted soul, thought she had been having a bit of a hard time so they should have a uh, you know, um, uh, a night out for her. But I think she's going to carry on or stagger on as Prime Minister, supported by uh, the Progressive Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland. Also known as the ISIS of Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> or the SVP yeah. of Northern Ireland. Yeah, during the general election, the Conservatives said, uh, warned that um, Britain might go back to the 70s. What they didn't realise is it was going to be the 1670s. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're happy to invade you again. So. <laughs> it was fun last time. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. This week, we have yet more news of the coalition negotiations, why teachers went on strike earlier this week, and an update on the kidnapped camera crew in Colombia. Plus, how you can bypass the slow security queues at Schiphol this summer, supposedly. And later on, we'll be discussing why euthanasia has become a hot topic in Dutch politics again. In what continues to be our top story every week, we have the latest on the coalition talks, which this week passed the 100-day mark. Informateur Herman Chank Vilnink stepped down on Monday after clearing his job done. In an interesting definition of the word done, this does not mean a government has been formed. Instead, Cenk Vilink whittled down the coalition options to one, a four-party combination of the VVD, CDA, Desa Sestag, and Christian Uni, and convinced them to talk about forming a cabinet with a majority of two seats. The actual coalition talks will be overseen by the new chief negotiator, Gerrit Zalm. He dove in this week with meetings on Thursday and Friday. Facing a serious row between Desa Sestag and 
the Christian Uni over euthanasia, Zalm may be in deep water when it comes to finding an agreement. Zalm plans to meet with the parties every day to fathom where the disagreements lie and make sure that things keep going swimmingly. In our discussion, we'll talk more about euthanasia and what the differences are in the various party platforms. So, Paul, did the love letters to Chank Vilnik tip the scales in favor of the government? Well, definitely it did. They are talking. That's uh, true. A few weeks ago, we uh, wouldn't be able to imagine them, uh, you know, trying to form a government again. And, uh, well, thanks to Hermann uh, Cenk Willink, uh, they're talking Everyone's again. made up, kissed and made up, and uh, they're ready to sit around and talk again. Yeah. Yeah. But was it Cenk Willink or was it the uh, the delicious Indonesian dinner that they had uh, in The Hague two I, weeks ago? I think it's the uh, Indonesian dinner, yeah. I think that was the, uh, you know, game changer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what do we know about Kurt Zalem uh, for people who are unfamiliar with, with him? Gerd Salm, uh, he uh, had been a uh, finance minister uh, in four terms. For a total of 16 years, he had been a uh, finance minister. And finance ministers, for some reason in this country, are always very popular. And respected. Yeah, well, the and Dutch, respected. Yeah. The Dutch do like their money. Uh, obviously, yeah. we do. And yeah. he's he's described as, uh, what was the uh, the pun, the unintentional pun about... Uh, well, so I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but uh, certainly it seems to have got to the point now that coalition talks have been going on so long that uh, possibly reports on New Zero are trying to sneak puns into their reports because Dominique van der Heide, who's usually very straight-laced, uh, said that uh, described Zalm as being um, like a fish, like an uh, awesome advertor, so like a fish in water, because his name means salmon. Yes, uh, I cannot uh, imagine journalists trying to sneak in fish-related puns. Certainly not in sort of No, no, that would no. be ridiculous. That would be yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, but he was a finance minister for a couple of years, well, almost two decades, yeah. and uh, he had been a respected figure. When he stepped down as a minister, he became involved in the uh, DSB bank. That bank went bankrupt in the uh, banking crisis, but he was uh, one of the leading uh, bankers there. So he was basically responsible for uh, a lot of people losing their money. Mm. And after that, uh, when the uh, Dutch government uh, nationalized the uh, ABN Amro Bank, he uh, became uh, one of the uh, chairman of, of, uh, of yeah. the nationalized bank. Yeah, did you not have to apologize recently when ABN was uh, floated back on the um, stock market because he paid a bit too much in um, salaries or bonuses to the top bankers? Yeah, he uh, he he uh, proposed to the uh, new finance minister that they wanted to uh, increase the bonuses for the uh, for the staff in uh, the ABN Amro. But st- still, the, this bank was nationalized, so it so it's just public considered. money. Yeah, it was public money, and they wanted to uh, uh, hand out bonuses to all these uh, bankers. Well. It was obviously a sensitive subject. My occasionally Socialist Party voting Dutch boyfriend, when I mentioned yesterday that they had a, that Psalm was going to be the new informator, literally stormed out of the room and threw up his hands <laughs> and mumbled about capitalism. He, so. he, he, he didn't went uh, went to the fish shop, bought no. of salmon and uh, threw it back in the canal. <laughs> no. Or, or batter it. But <laughs> perhaps that's why he proposed that we have uh, salmon next week for dinner. Uh, so He's a battered salmon. Of course. <laughs> battered salmon. Well, hopefully the coalition talks aren't too uh, battered. Thousands of primary school children got an extra hour in bed this week when teachers went on strike in a dispute over pay. The teachers want the government to invest more money in education to close the gap between what primary and secondary teachers earn. Starting salaries in secondary schools are 7% higher, while the highest earners get 21% more. But the unions argue the workload is broadly similar. However, Education Minister Jet Bussemaker told Parliament this week that the department's budget is already fully allocated. What do teachers earn here, Gordon? So primary school teachers, I looked this up, uh, start on just under €2,900 a month. Uh, that's including bonuses and things like holiday pay. <laughs> bonuses by Gerrit <laughs> Possibly. Uh, and it rises to just over 5,300. Uh, at secondary school, you start on 3,100 and you get up to 6,300. So yeah. not bad. 
So what started this whole uh, dispute this week? So it was a group of teachers that um, had been um, talking about uh, strike action uh, for a while and uh, if the government didn't pledge to spend more money on education. Because the slightly awkward thing is that we have a caretaker government at the moment. So what they can do is quite restricted. Um, but I think the teachers wanted to get... Um, get the message across uh, certainly before the end of the school year because there's only two weeks to go so they felt like they had to do this uh, one hour strike now otherwise they have to wait till September then of course it comes into the next budget or they're in danger of missing the next budget and have to wait a whole year for it to come up again um, so that's probably why they did the, took the action just now. So did you enjoy your uh, extra uh, hour of lying? Uh, I didn't get to know lying because I've got another child whose uh, school wasn't on strike so I had to take him in and then uh, sort of uh, yeah, uh, find something to do for an hour until I could take my younger son in school. It's yeah, a... and I think we have to apologize because last week we claimed you weren't uh, at the podcast recording because of the uh, teacher strike. But since we don't have any children, or at least not that I'm aware of, and I think that's the same for Molly. Absolutely. <laughs> please forgive us our ignorance. <laughs> no, that's a different thing. My, 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 one of my children had a day off because uh, they have a marshadach, which means that uh, uh, children in primary school uh, get, get extra uh, yeah, extra days of school. Ah, so it was school related? It was school related, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, well, we apologize to our listeners <laughs> for bringing them uh, fake news Fake news, <laughs> Schiphol Airport announced on Wednesday its summer plans. No, they're not going to Ibiza, but to avoid the long waiting lines in the peak season. During the spring break, you remember, passengers had to wait for hours to get through security, and some passengers even missed their flights because of that. The airport opened 12 extra security gates and hired hundreds of extra staff for July and August. Other extra measurements is the introduction of the no trolley queues. Passengers traveling with little or no luggage will be given priority going through security over passengers with larger bags and suitcases. The airport is confident, according to themselves, it will be able to control the waiting lines this summer. So Molly, uh, since you're a journalist and you're always on top of the news, uh, you went there to uh, Schiphol in May. What were your experiences then? My uh, my Schiphol experiences are always quite uh, pleasant. Um, some of that may have to do with the fact that I have no kids, so I'm not sort of bound by the <laughs> holiday season schedule, and also I have no kids, so that always makes my life nicer. Um, but yeah, we didn't. We had you know sort of breezed right through and didn't have too much so uh, no, waiting in line. Not much problems. No, but I am flying uh, in in July right at the height of uh, tourist season. What day? Uh, this calendar. I, I'm flying on the 20th of July. Oh, wow, that's a rush hour. Yeah. It does appear to be a rush hour. Yeah. Um, yes. Though I'm only flying to uh, Hamburg, so I'm not. it's not an international uh, flight. Yeah, um, but you still got to go through the same security queues. As, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So we shall see how it goes. I will report back after my summer break to complain, perhaps, or uh, compliment the uh, skippel. We'll all be waiting for that. I'm sure you will mm -hmm. be waiting. Well, uh, KLM had some uh, inconveniences in the spring break. They announced uh, earlier this week they will file a damage claim against Schiphol. The airline has said they lost millions of euros during the May holiday. And uh, yeah, well, due to the cost of removing baggage and rebooking passengers and other issues, as well as the damage to the airline's overall image, they claim. Schiphol has publicly acknowledged before that they are responsible for the massive delay, so they should have uh, stayed shut, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. wise. Yeah, so, so basically this, this move is really to stop the airport getting sued rather than for the convenience of uh, airline passengers. Yeah, basically, yeah. Basically, yeah. So what's, what's causing a lot of these delays? As I understand, it's a lot of uh, passenger growth, basically. Yeah, indeed. Um, Schiphol saw a passenger growth of 9% uh, in the first quarter of the year, and the airport has to deal with uh, 200,000 passengers a day on average in the summer. That's what they expect. 
the airport uh, published a nice little calendar, uh, which we will include, uh, and that shows uh, on what days they expect uh, you to suffer delays and uh, waiting lines. So Molly, be prepared. According to this calendar, I will be suffering delays and waiting in line. So I guess we shall uh, see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So enjoy that. In a happy update to some news from last week, a Dutch journalist and cameraman who were kidnapped in northern Colombia earlier this month were released by their captors over the weekend. TV presenter Derek Bolt and cameraman Eugenio Folander were trying to trace the mother of someone adopted by a Dutch couple when they were held by the guerrilla movement ENL. According to media reports, the pair were released without ransom, being paid, and are in good condition. So, always happy to have a good uh, update. Yeah, and they uh, there was a broadcast of the show uh, the day after they were released, and they had a nice little live thank you to everyone who was supporting them. We're happy to welcome them yeah. all. And do you think we can fly over these uh, hostage negotiators uh, from Colombia to try and sort out the next government? Because they seem to sort it out quite quickly. Uh, perhaps we can ask. <laughs> maybe you can write them a letter. Yeah, yeah maybe they should start negotiating in the jungle of Colombia. <laughs> yeah, this would be, uh, yeah. Perhaps we should leave the coalition parties in the jungles of Colombia until and they form the government. Until they form a government. 22 years ago, some 8,000 Muslim men and boys died in the massacre at Srebrenica. The former UN Security General, Kofi Annan, called it Europe's worst war crime since 1945. This week, the appeal court in The Hague ruled that the Dutch state was partly responsible for the deaths of 300 men who were ordered to leave the compound by Dutch troops. Judges upheld a lower court ruling that the soldiers sent the men away even when there was a risk that they would be inhumanely treated or executed, and the government's been ordered to compensate their relatives. So what did the victims said about this uh, judgment? Uh, yeah, the, the mothers of Srebrenica, which was uh, the group that brought the case, uh, aren't happy with the judgment. They say the gov- Dutch government should be held responsible for all 8,000 deaths. Uh, the court's decision was that there was no way the soldiers could have um, stopped the Bosnian Serb forces over- overrunning the enclave. They also slightly curiously uh, re- uh, limited the conversation to 30% of what was being claimed because they decided that the chance of survival uh, was 30%. Um, and the background to this, obviously, is that uh, Srebrenica was uh, supposed to be a safe area run by the UN um, but the Dutch troops were outnumbered they didn't have any aerial support and um, the Bosnian Serbs came in and um, yeah, uh, committed mass genocide uh, so the mothers of Srebrenica are now going to take this case to the European Court of Justice and I hear also that there's a, a class action lawsuit um, on behalf of the Dutch soldiers who are there right? yeah there's another case uh, in the courts uh, no, there was another case in the news this uh, this week that uh, some 200 soldiers now have, uh, who were from the Dutch Bat Battalion uh, that, that was the, uh, the troops who were uh, guarding Srebrenica um, they've uh, joined a class action lawsuit now. They're claiming compensation from the Dutch government for the trauma they suffered during while they were uh, guarding uh, the enclave. And uh, they, uh, they're claiming a sim- what's called a symbolic amount of €22,000 per soldier. That's one for every year. That's €1,000 for every year um, since uh, since the massacre. Um, but when you think there's 200 of them, uh, €22,000 per soldier adds up to €4 million. Euros. That's a bit more than the symbolic amount. Uh, they claim problems like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, broken relationships, uh, they can't find work, they're struggling to readjust to society. And the Defence Ministry has said that um, the the soldiers were uh, sent into a mission that uh, they couldn't possibly uh, complete successfully. That's really problematic. It is, yeah. yeah. Well, they've had similar problems with this because there's also been similar stories that have come out of, say, Rwanda and the Congo where they kind of put peacekeeping forces in place but their their uh, capabilities are so restricted either by not being given air support or not being given, you know, f- uh, weaponry and the, these sorts of things are being so restricted by the amount of, by w- what they can do and how they can respond that it sort of puts people in this really terrible position where they are supposed to be guarding people and these people are told that they are safe and then, you know, when, when something arises.
rises, they can't actually protect them. Yeah, it's really difficult. And obviously this has been running now for, for 20 years and uh, doesn't show any signs of ending soon. And uh, it is to come down to, you know, where do you put the responsibility? Is it on the individual governments? Is it the terms of the UN mandate? Um, you know, some academics uh, who specialise in um, peacekeeping uh, say, you know, a warning that uh, this will make it, this might deter governments from going on peacekeeping missions because of the risk of being sued. Uh, being sued. Yeah. Well, it's a really terrible story, I think, all around. Indeed. Teenagers have long complained about their parents using Facebook. Now they also need to worry about their grandparents. A report released this week by CBS shows that 49% of the population aged 65 and older in the Netherlands were using some form of social media. This is up from 26% only two years earlier. Social media usage is up in all age groups, with 80% of people 12 and older actively participating in everything from WhatsApp to Skype. According to the report, pensioners particularly like Facebook, which means you should be prepared for your next friend request to come from grandma. So, Gordon, do your parents use uh, social media? Uh, my dad is on Facebook, um, and he also uh, uh, is uh, uses email, and usually in combination, he'll see a message on Facebook, uh, he'll try to write a reply, uh, completely get lost, and then send me an email saying, how do I reply to this message? <laughs> uh, that's how he uses sounds, social media. <laughs> sounds very uh, very typical parenting yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. What about your parents, Paul? Uh, my mother is on Facebook, but only because she, she connected it with Candy Crush. Oh, okay. Oh, there yeah. you go. Um, so do you just get a constant stream of Candy Crush requests now? From well, I blocked that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I used to, yeah. And my father, he, uh, he always uh, uh, complained about you know his children uh, uh, being on their phone and uh, chatting on, the, on WhatsApp. And now only recently he bought an iPhone with WhatsApp and well, guess what? He's constantly, <laughs> constantly WhatsApping. WhatsApping. Yeah, so. And how happens. about your relatives, uh, Molly? They've graduated to um my dad refuses to use facebook but my stepmom is on it so they is it because you're on in a fight with uh, with facebook yes in part in part because i'm in a fight with facebook um so my dad makes my stepmom sit down every night over dinner and go through all of the stuff that their kids have posted on facebook so he's like using facebook by proxy mm -hmm. but both of my parents are on instagram um because they quite like to follow our our photos. So the only really reason that they're on is because all of my siblings and respective spouses and whatnot are all on Instagram. Um, but my dad comments on every single thing that I post on Instagram <laughs> and often is very and what confused. what kind of comments are these? Just very confused comments <laughs> sometimes. What is this country? Why yeah, are what are you, what do you yeah. do? Are you drinking again? <laughs> Shouldn't you be working? Yes. Cat lovers will have a great summer here in the Netherlands because recently the Dutch zoos experienced an actual birth wave of big kittens. For example, in Artist Zoo Amsterdam, two jaguars were born on Thursday. It will take a couple of weeks before they will leave their enclosures, but the zoo opened a live stream on the internet, so you can uh, check that out. In Blijdorp Zoo in Rotterdam, a serval was born last week, and the very cute and very fluffy kitten is already exploring its enclosure. Unfortunately, the grass in there is pretty high, but if you wait long enough you'll definitely be able to enjoy the adorable kitten in all its glory. And finally Safari Zoo Beekse Berge in Brabant announced the birth of lion triplets. The zoo published a video of the newborns on their YouTube channel. So Molly do you have a name suggestion for the lion kittens? Uh, Rar. Rar? Rar. Well I think they should call him Herman, Chink and Willink. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's much better I like that. You can, can we name it Zalm? Is that, a, is that uh, an appropriate name for it? Salm ate it and uh, yeah, a schipper. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, man. Or motorblock and Mo uh, motorblock. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or Mark, uh, Alexander, and uh, do that one. But again. then who do, do we leave out? Who do you leave yeah. out? Yeah. 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 Y
That's going to cause... They're, they'll be in the jungle <laughs> for months they'll be, they'll be then. Another, let's yeah, not, they'll, they'll let's not the, do yeah, this. They'll, they'll never leave the jungle if you start arguing on that. So, Paul, please explain to me why uh, triplets are frequently born in Brabant. Uh, I cannot possibly comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> for, for our listeners, Paul is in fact a triplet himself. Well, part of a triplet. Part of a triplet. Mm. Oh, really? You're yeah, not just I... one triplet all wrapped up together? <laughs> that would be weird. Yeah, you, you are my... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> really, we are we're, we're we're actually we're secretly are the three of us triplets. are triplets. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just from Brabant. So uh, yeah. I, do you feel a kinship with the lion triplet? They haven't determined if they are male or female yet. So if it's one male and two females, I, uh, I can emotionally uh, connect uh, with connect them. With mm-hmm. Them, yeah. Very nice. We'll be discussing why the coalition talks have revived the row over euthanasia after this word from our sponsors. Access is an independent, not-for-profit organization which has been helping internationals successfully settle in the Netherlands for the past 30 years. Access is run entirely by a team of highly skilled, motivated and professional volunteers who have themselves been experts. Their vision is to provide essential, comprehensive and unique services nationally through the expertise and experience of their volunteer expatriate community. You can find out more about Access and the services they offer at the website www.access-nl.org. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. As we said earlier, fresh attempts to form a coalition government will begin next week, and one of the key points of contention is likely to be euthanasia and the right to die. D66 has put a bill through Parliament that would allow anyone over the age of 75 to request help with dying, regardless of their state of health. The Netherlands was the first country in the world to legalise euthanasia in 2002, and the number of cases has risen steadily since. So why is the subject on the agenda again, and what impact has euthanasia had so far? So let's begin with what's the difference between euthanasia, assisted suicide and end of life? Yeah, so the law that came in in 2002 was for actually separated euthanasia from assisted suicide. Euthanasia is where the patient goes to the doctor and says, uh, for whatever reason, usually because they're terminally ill, and says, I don't want to live anymore, I'm in terrible pain, and I don't have long to go, um, please can you uh, organise a dignified death? And the doctor then um, starts that process, it starts a series of conversations, they then have to have the case reviewed by a second doctor who specialises in euthanasia cases and get a third opinion as well. The, the key thing is it's the, the request is by the patient and then the doctor will then, if he agrees to the patient's request, will then administer the um, the fatal drug or whatever himself. Uh, assisted suicide uh, is, is less common and is slightly different because the doctor gives the patient, again, a kind of cocktail of lethal drugs, and but the patient takes it themselves. So uh, what's the difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide? Uh, so assisted suicide is slightly different because uh, the doctor gives um, uh, the patient a prescription, usually a, uh, a kind of lethal uh, cocktail of drugs uh, mixed up in a drink, and then the patient takes the medicine themselves with the doctor present. Uh, euthanasia is where the doctor actually administers the fatal dose themselves either by injection or by uh, by some kind of drink. And this end-of-life thing, is this is this is part of the new proposal from Desis Assestug, which, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, that's kind of a step further forward. It's called Voltoid Leven in Dutch. It's uh, for people who don't have any kind of terminal illness, but they've just decided that um, their lives are at an end, they, that they don't want to live anymore, uh, often because you know they've lost partners and they've lost relatives and uh, they, they just don't see any quality of life any longer. The legislation as it's uh, been drafted is uh, it would be for any, anyone over the age of 75 would be eligible for it. It wouldn't... Uh, also involve your doctor necessarily there would be a trained specialist in kind of um, uh, arranging end of life you have to have two interviews I think at least two months apart to show that you had a sincere and you know uh, long term uh, wish to die and uh, and it would also like the euthanasia that th- there's only a review of the case after after the patient has died to make sure it's been handled properly is there a reason for this 75 uh, limit 
I think they just kind of picked it, kind of arbitrary figure. I, mean, I think, uh, obviously, there was a moment during the election campaign, you might remember, when Alexander Pechtel was uh, confronted on television by a man who was in his sort of mid-50s, I think, called Martin Koch, who he wanted to die. And he said, why, why can't it just be for me you know, at, at my age? And I think Pechtel's argument was that you, know, you have to bring these things in gradually, and it's quite a big shift in society. So the, I think yeah. they just picked this uh, age of 75 as what seems like a reasonable uh, point in your life now to make this kind of decision. That was quite an emotional moment. Uh, it was, yeah. very much, yeah. So what is the Christian Uni's up Position to this. Christian Union basically just opposes it in principle. I mean, they're, they're a Christian party. They're, they're sort of based their policy on uh, uh, the teaching of the Bible and think, in, in, in their view, it's not for people for uh, you know uh, to to make decisions about life and death. They just don't want to get into that at all. And uh, so, so I think because it's a principle objection, it's quite hard to see how they can find any kind of compromise on it. And do they have a solution for people who are feeling this way? So sort of terminally ill patients who are in a great deal of pain, but also older people who maybe feel like their life is, has, is complete? On the kind of end of life uh, discussion, the, the argument is that we should just be um, focused much more on, on actually making sure that people don't feel kind of lonely and desolate and uh, completely disconnected from society to the point where they decide that they don't want to live any longer. There should be more kind of provision for you know, combating loneliness and uh, making sure that elderly people are, are looked after and don't fall into long-term, long-term depression. So how does the euthanasia law in the Netherlands compare to other countries? For example, in the United Kingdom, is euthanasia legalized? No, it's not legal in the UK. And there's been a few court cases. Um, there was a man five years ago now who had kind of locked-in syndrome, so he could barely move. I think he could sort of communicate by moving his eyelashes or something. And mm-hmm. So he communicated enough to say that he didn't want to go on in this state any longer. But there was a long-running court case about it, and they had to keep you know, taking this poor guy back and forward to court while the lawyers argued about whether or not you know, he could um, go to Switzerland, which is his wish. They wanted to uh, send him to the Dignitas Clinic, which administers kind of euthanasia to people worldwide. And it's ran on and on. So I think there's been a lot of, uh, yeah, there is kind of a periodically a kind of discussion about whether euthanasia should be allowed. It's got to the point now, I think, where uh, in that case, I think uh, the courts, although they decided that, uh, you know, it, it, obviously the, the law had been broken, they didn't actually um, punish the relatives for arranging his death. And I think it's now in this kind of limbo state where it's illegal. But if you sort of show that you've been careful in, and there's the, 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 person, the patient themselves, uh, really doesn't want to live any longer and they're terminally ill, courts are not going to uh, sanction you for that. Yeah, but with the new coalition, it's uh, yeah, hard to imagine it will be put into law anytime soon. Probably not. Yeah, and how about in the States, uh, Molly? Completely uh, illegal. And there's yeah. been a number of like really sort of devastating, I think, court cases about this. There was a doctor maybe 10 or 15 years ago, Dr. Kevorkian, who sort of was really pushing to do this, and he spent a lot of time in jail for uh, assisting patients with suicide. There was a case a couple of years ago where a couple, um, the, the husband had some sort of terminal cancer, terminal illness, and he also wanted to go to, to Switzerland to die, and so they uh, attempted to arrange it in such a way that the wife would not be able to be prosecuted for sort of assisting the suicide, but she ended up being prosecuted anyway. There were charges brought against her for, I think, helping him pack or doing his laundry, like one of these sort of a, kind of obscure, absurd, I, in my perspective, absurd sort of assistance, quote unquote. Yeah. And there's been some other really sort of, yeah, heart-wrenching cases. There was an issue uh, after Hurricane Katrina where there was a number of uh, patients who were in a, a hospital that had lost electricity so it had no air conditioning the backup generators were flooded and that the doctors had given these patients who were quite ill morphine and they were charged with uh, assisted suicide the doctors and the nurses were arguing
arguing that they had only given the morphine in order to help with pain management, um, but a number of people died, and the the sort of autopsies said that they died as a result of a morphine overdose, so they were charged with, with murder, manslaughter or something. Yeah, so it's not even a thing that's really sort of on the table for discussion in the U.S. We're, we're too busy arguing about whether or not gay people should be allowed to get married. <laughs> and, and what about the rest of Europe? Yeah, it varies country by country, so like you said, Switzerland has pretty generous, I guess for lack of a better term, rules that allow f- yeah euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. Belgium also as well allows mm. for it, so it kind of just differs in each uh, in each country. As Gordon said, there's also a bit of this question where the gray area comes in, so maybe it's not legal for the doctor to prescribe you a lethal dose, right? There's not this sort of prescribed process, but whether or not the prosecutors will bring cases against, say, you know, the wife of someone who decides to commit suicide and, and she assists with that and those sorts of things, um, which seems to not happen so frequently in Europe as it does uh, in the US. Yeah, because the whole reason it came in, certainly in the Netherlands in the first place, was that uh, you know, doctors were doing this you know, anyway. A patient comes to you and says, doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm terminally ill, I'm in awful pain. Um, uh, I, I don't want to go through the agony of the last uh, couple of months of, say, terminal cancer. You know, no, no, no humane doctor is going to Reject that. They want to make sure you suffer as little discomfort as possible. So I think that's the argument for bringing it in, in the first place. I mean, there was a case in the 90s where a doctor actually ended the life of a woman who was in her 50s and physically in in, in reasonable condition, but she just didn't want to go on any longer. Um, and the courts then decided to not. To, although obviously they said he'd broken the law, they didn't punish him. And that was, I think, was, that was kind of the precursor for introducing this law. So yeah, it's, it's been going on anyway. But so, so Paul, I'm I'm curious to know. Do you think that since the the legislation was brought through in 2002 that legalize euthanasia there's been a change in uh, the way the debates have been framed well i i think there is a definitely a change in uh, uh, in parliament because right now we have a very diffused political field we have a lot of parties back then we only had a, a handful so whenever there was a uh, coalition to be made you only had to deal with three or four major parties but now we have such a diffused uh, uh, political field we you have to take into account the smaller parties as well much what's what's happening in in britain now when you don't have a majority with a couple of seats so you have to bring in this this small fish with this radical ideas and what what's also happening is that as the turnout is decreasing over time the base for the orthodox uh, uh, christian parties uh, Christian Union, SGP, they are very loyal, so they always turn turn up, they always vote, so their relative influence in Parliament increases as well. Yeah. Although turnout went up last election, didn't it? Last election, yeah, but yeah. the trend is that it's going it down. Is. But of course, you know, people who want euthanasia and are not eligible under these parameters, I mean, they have another option, which is that they just commit suicide, which is just euthanasia without a doctor's stamp of approval, right? I mean, like, it's not like your option is, is living on and, and trying to develop a fulfilling life or dying under your doctor's care. There is this sort of other option, which people do exercise. Yeah, but I think this, this suicide part, it, it has a much larger threshold, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you you bring your family into a lot, lot of pain, I think, yeah. if you, I don't know, commit suicide, hang yourself uh, in the stairway and, and wait, yeah, and your, your family comes home and, you, and they find them I think it's a different situation if you, you know, commit suicide in a humane way than do it in a, well, very painful way, I guess. Yeah, but I, I mean, I guess I would argue that, um, you know, people who are sort of willing to overcome that threshold to put their family through that to, to sort of die under these what we can imagine are maybe not the most ideal conditions are probably in such pain, whether that pain is physical mm. or mental, that, that they should be allowed an option to kind of end their life in their own on their own terms, as opposed to sort of feeling forced by the system maybe to do it on their own. That's what the entire debate is. So what's the sort of proposed solution that, that the coalition partners have, have come up with? They haven't come up with anything yet. 
have they? Because uh, there's the talks to form the new government are going to start again next week, and this is supposed to be one of the first things on the table to try and clear this out of the way. But they're, they're, the positions are very entrenched. I think Alexander Pechtel, leader of D66, his argument is, well, the bill has already started in Parliament. Just let it pass through as a bill, as a parliamentary bill. Don't just leave it all, the whole issue out of the coalition uh, agreement altogether. But I think uh, the Chris and Nuni are quite firm about saying, you know, we want to actually make sure that there is no danger of this happening if we're, if we're to take part in government. So it's it's a difficult one to square. It's a delicate situation because what usually happens is that the government brings uh, brings a law forward to parliament but uh, MPs can bring a law, uh, write the law themselves and uh, put it to a vote. And this new law is written by Pia Dijkstra who is a D66 MP. If, if it was a different situation if these, if Pia Dijkstra wasn't a, a, a member of, of D66 it would have been an entirely different situation but now D66 will be part of the coalition so it's a delicate situation do you allow d66 mps to write a law for themselves and just bring it bring it forward and put it to a vote or do you you know uh, want the entire coalition to stick to this fraction loyalty and do not do things on their own and just do what the uh, what the coalition agreement says yeah and i suppose that's uh, the problem really when when you bring this kind of issue into an election campaign which is obviously a very polarizing arena you tend to the position you tend to see that the the differences in opinion become wider and and more entrenched and this is a really delicate issue and often it requires kind of you know, individual solutions, and I think one one kind of thing I think is that you know the, the, these laws are kind of um, you know, discussed and brought about by politicians who are kind of in the prime of health. And it's really really difficult, maybe, to think yourself into the situation of somebody who's actually facing death or considering uh, dying and feels they have no quality of life. Uh, when, when you sort of feel you know fine and well, I know um, when my wife was dying. Um, just around about the time we moved here, we discussed this issue back and forth an awful lot. I think it was a comfort to her, definitely, that the option was available, that she had terminal cancer, she was deteriorating quite fast. In the end, she died so quickly that she, she never got the option. But I think it was a great comfort to her to know that you know, if things got unbearable, if she, if the pain was just too great, she could just sit down with the doctor and just have a humane and quiet, quiet sensible discussion uh, about it and arrange you know, to go quietly. And also the other thing is that you, know, you, you can pick the day, you can have your family around your bed, side you can say your goodbyes you know and, and, and everyone can prepare for it and then afterwards they can sit around among themselves and, you know, and start the grieving process i think that's surely a much much better and more humane way to do things than to insist that people carry on in agony well that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the line of notes you can email us at podcast at dutchnews.nl my thanks to molly quell and paul peters i'm gordon darach and we'll be back next week Thank you.